I would like to talk through just briefly an introduction to the book of Proverbs. Uh, this is something I, I introduced at my church just last week, and we're starting a new series over there. And uh, I am going to clue you in on this, just kind of share with you the basic introduction to the book of Proverbs. And then in the next service, the morning service, we'll be looking at, uh, I'm actually going to, y'all will be my guinea pigs, I'm going to give you a run at my Christmas sermon. All right, the sermon I'm prepping for Christmas over there, you guys get it here, okay? It's just a month early, but that's okay. All right, so, um, but today, this morning, during Sunday School Hour, I want to talk through the book of Proverbs, and I'll, it'll be largely introductory, but my, the uh, subtitle to the series that uh, I'm teaching through here in the book of Proverbs is Skill for Living, Skill for Living. Uh, the book of Proverbs is all about that. In fact, the, the word wisdom, which appears in Hebrew, it has various nuances of meaning, but my favorite definition is just that. It's skill for living or skillful living. And the concept is that, you know, I, I like to say that the book of Proverbs is uh, the guiding light for us when it comes to practical everyday living. Uh, my family and I just recently got back from a vacation back in uh, October. We went back to uh, where my wife and I honeymooned in Seaside, Oregon. And my wife and I had been there a couple of times, but uh, we took the kids. And this was their first time uh, over on the coast and enjoying that uh, experience of the ocean, etc. And... But what was interesting while we were there, you know, we, we like lighthouses. And so we went looking for lighthouses. And Seaside, if you've ever been to that area, it's really far north in Oregon. It's just a few miles from the Washington border, the Columbia River Gorge. And that area where the Columbia River dumps into the ocean is known as the Graveyard of the Pacific. Uh, because there was enormous amount of shipwrecks that occurred in that area historically. In fact, there was one uh, state park that we went and just kind of, you know, explored for a while. And on the state park, it, was, it just went right up to the shoreline, there was a wreckage that's just over 100 years old. And it's, it's, you can still walk up to the wreckage and the, the bow of the ship is sticking up out of the sand and, you know, most of it's buried. Uh, but you can go and check it out and the kids were, you know, climbing over it and et cetera. But because of the treachery of those waters, just the treacherous nature of those waters, there was a pretty elaborate system of lighthouses up and down that portion of the coast in order to help you know, sailors as they were making their way into trying to get up the Columbia River, right, to sell their goods, etc. And so I like to view the book of Proverbs in a sense like a lighthouse, that it is giving to us the, the fundamental realities we need to be aware of in order to live life with skill, to navigate the waters of life that are so treacherous at times, that there are so many pitfalls, there's so many things that we can do wrong, there's so many ways we can shipwreck our lives, uh, spiritually, morally speaking. And so the book of Proverbs is, in a sense, like that series of lighthouses, trying to give us the skill by which we can navigate the treacherous waters. And so with that in mind, my goal today... In just a, again, we're largely introductory today, just trying to give you an overview of the book of Proverbs, as well as an interest uh, to just study it on your own, to just enjoy uh, the book of Proverbs. I don't know how many of you have done this. My dad started me at a young age, uh, right? I'll read a proverb a day, keeps the devil away. You ever heard that, right? But uh, book of Proverbs is, is it's, it's a common, uh, I guess, spiritual discipline uh, in, in the lives of many Christians, but Reading a chapter a day in the book of Proverbs will get you through the book of Proverbs once every month. 
Uh, in fact, one of, the, my, my, uh, one of the reasons I got into reading the book of Proverbs is because my dad has had that practice for many years. And so, you know, he got me into it. And then I went to college, and one of my favorite profs, a guy by the name of Les Olala, he also was uh, just big on the book of Proverbs. In fact, he had memorized, he'd given much of his life to memorizing the entire book. And it was uh, obvious when he taught, and his teaching was just loaded with the book of Proverbs. Since becoming a, a pastor, I myself have, have used the book of Proverbs over and over and over again, not only in my life, uh, but in counseling scenarios. The Proverbs are just, they're, they're so pithy, right? The short, pithy, profound sayings that give us uh, so much insight into living that it is immensely helpful when I'm sitting down with uh, people, you know, regardless of their issue, whether it's marriage counseling, whether it's uh, parental, you know, looking for parental advice, whether it's an ethical dilemma uh, that people are having between, you know, what do I do in this situation? Well, the book of Proverbs is just so full of wisdom to help us navigate life. And so uh, my, my goal today is to give you a grasp of the book of Proverbs just in a, on an introductory level. But then hopefully to incite within you an excitement to just give yourself to the book uh, for your entire life. Just to become very familiar with this section of the Bible because of how helpful it is. So I want to begin by just giving you a real quick introduction to what the book of Proverbs has come to be known. Uh, in fact, it's, it's, it's not unique in antiquity. The book of Proverbs, in fact, is a collection of proverbial sayings that uh, come primarily from King Solomon. We'll talk about that in a second. But it fits into a very well-known genre known as wisdom literature. So I want to spend just a moment talking about that. Give you then a quick bird's-eye view of the uh, structure of Proverbs. We won't spend long with this. I could easily get lost in it and, you know, waste away the hour. Uh, But just what are the themes of the book? What are the major components, parts of the book? Third, I want to spend some time understanding a proverb, right? A proverb. What is a proverb? And there's some practical insights that are helpful to understand as you approach the book in order to interpret it and apply it appropriately. Then, of course, we'll get to the practicality of it. Why is it so helpful? Well, I kind of introduced some of that already because it it introduces for us skillful living. Uh, It helps us navigate uh, the pitfalls of life. But then, as much as time will allow, we'll, we'll dwell lastly on this road to wisdom. In other words, there's four big criteria uh, that the book gives us to gain wisdom. In other words, the first nine chapters, as you'll see, are basically the father pleading with the son to see the importance of wisdom. He's pleading with him to please, you know, pursue wisdom. And so the road to wisdom is then just kind of a practical milestones along the way of how do we get there? How do we become a wise person that can navigate life with skill and and meaning and purpose? And so we'll, we'll talk about that briefly. All right, so let me begin with just an introduction to wisdom literature uh, and just talk about this for just a moment. Now, one scholar observed that the Hebrew Old Testament, in other words, if you study it in its Hebrew order rather than its English order, but in Hebrew, the Old Testament is is typically divided into three major sections, the law, prophets, and the writings. You're familiar with this? I know my dad's talked about it. Um, But what's interesting is that these three categories of Old Testament literature answer or correspond to the three groups of leaders that Israel had, namely priest, prophet, and the wise person. And we won't go there for sake of time, but in Jeremiah 18, 18, 
as well as some of these other passages listed, um, we have the concept of the sage or the wise person. If you're not familiar with that, a sage was a professional class of learned elite who counseled kings. We see them throughout antiquity. Uh, Every monarchy, uh, every kingly court had connected with it a sage class that would counsel the kings, right? The cabinet, if you will, uh, of antiquity. Well, we have examples of this throughout the scripture. I throw up one pretty famous example, 2 Samuel 16 there uh, on the screen, 2 Samuel 16, 23, references Ahitophel. Do you remember Ahitophel? He is the counselor to uh, David, but then he defects from David and he counsels the rebel Absalom. Do you remember that? Now, do you anyone remember the backstory? Why did Ahitophel, who, by the way, was a sage, it says, whose counsel was so wise, it was considered as an oracle from God. In other words, his wisdom was, was so renowned that if he spoke, then it was as if God himself was speaking. That's what uh, that text tells us in 2 Samuel 16. But do you remember the backstory? Ahitophel defected from David and supported Absalom, And Absalom's downfall, by the way, was that he didn't listen to Ahithophel. Remember that? Read the narrative. It's amazing. Had Absalom listened to Ahithophel, he would have defeated his father David and successfully, you know, know, claimed the throne of Israel. But, if you recall, Ahithophel defects from David and joins Absalom because he had a daughter. What was her name? The daughter's name was Bathsheba. Do you remember that? And Bathsheba was the one with whom David had an adulterous affair. And then, of course, he murdered uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Remember that? So the daddy, I think you can imagine, well, you know, <laughs> his motivations in defecting from David. Nonetheless, I think, and we could get lost in that narrative, but the point is, I point you to that to help illustrate what a sage is. He's a counselor. He's someone who is, his profession is to be a counselor to kings and, and lawmakers, etc. Well, when we come to the book of Proverbs, we understand that it's written, according, in fact, if you've got your Bible open, Proverbs 1.1 informs us this, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Solomon was a renowned royal sage. In fact, he was not only uh, you know, royalty, he was a king himself, but he was wiser than all of his counselors. Right? He was, he was, in fact, the Bible will inform us that Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And yet he lived 700 years before Socrates, Plato, or Aristotle. In other words, in the Western world, we look often, uh, you know, in, in Greco-Roman society, these men were revered as the fathers of philosophy and wisdom in many cases. And yet Solomon predates them by seven centuries. And Solomon is much wiser than these so-called renowned sages. But the scripture is clear that Solomon received his wisdom from a variety of sources. In fact, if you're there in the book of Proverbs, pop over to chapter 4 real quick. Let me read the first four verses of this chapter. Solomon received his wisdom, first of all, from his father David. He tells us this. In Proverbs 4 verse 1, he says, Hear, you children, the instruction of a father, and attend to no understanding, for I give you good doctrine. Forsake you not my law. For I was my father's son. Tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He also taught me and said unto me, Let my heart, re- uh, let your heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. 
and you know, we could go on. But notice in particular, verse 3 and 4, that it informs us, Solomon speaking, he says, my father taught me wisdom. Now, we could go to a number of passages. Uh, we won't for sake of time, but 1 Kings 2, as well as 1 Chronicles 28, are just examples of David giving wise counsel to his son Solomon. In fact, uh, I've got to read the 1 Chronicles one because it's so good. It's like a one-verse condensed summary uh, of what book of Proverbs will essentially become. But in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9, uh, yeah, 1 Chronicles 28, 9, David says this to Solomon. He says, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the imaginations of the thoughts. If you seek him, he'll be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. So he goes on and he says, take heed, uh, you know, and on he goes. But the point is, David gave to Solomon this sort of wisdom. However, if you continue to read the narrative, 1 Kings 3 informs us that ultimately his wisdom comes from God. God shows up to Solomon in a dream, and he gives to Solomon the closest thing the Bible comes to a blank check. Right? God says to Solomon, what do you want? Ask me anything and I'll give it to you. And Solomon, I like to say, has enough wisdom to ask for wisdom. That's what he asks for. He says, Lord, I, I need your wisdom to know your law in order to properly guide your people. God, of course, gives uh, Solomon wisdom in answer to that request. And Solomon then becomes the wisest man who ever lived. Now, I also would suggest, and, and I don't have... Again, for sake of time, we won't go there, but jot this down. Psalm 72 records a prayer of David on behalf of Solomon. It is my personal uh, belief that Solomon was wise enough to ask for wisdom because David prayed for it. David asked God to give supernatural wisdom to his son. Why? Well, read Psalm 72. It's because... Solomon needed God's wisdom to know God's law and to properly enforce justice and lead God's people. Now, when God answered that prayer of David, answered the request of Solomon, and Solomon was granted supernatural wisdom, he then demonstrated that wisdom in ruling his kingdom. One of the most famous stories that accounts for that uh, in the early narratives of the book of 1 Kings is when Solomon has posed before him the unsolvable dilemma of two harlots that are fighting over one child. Do you remember this? This is a famous uh, scene in the life of Solomon, and it evidences his wisdom. Well, when the two harlots are fighting over the child and they can't decide who it is, you know, who's the child is, then Solomon says, well, bring me a sword, right? And what's his solution? He says, let's cut the child in half, and let's give half to that mom and half to this mom. Well, as shocking as that is, you see the reaction of the two mothers, right? The one whose child it is not says, okay, let's cut it in half. It won't be yours or mine. But the true mother says, no, 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 don't cut the baby in half. Give her the baby, just spare its life. And that motherly instinct was the dead giveaway. And Solomon says, that's the true mother. Give her the child. The text then reports that after All Israel hears of that ruling, that verdict. It says they feared Solomon. 
Now think about that for just a second. That, that actually has implications later in the book of Proverbs when it talks about the fear of the Lord. I think it's an interesting illustration of that. But what does it mean when it says the people feared Solomon? The idea was that his wisdom was so penetrating that you couldn't get away with anything. You see, you, corruption could not occur in his government because he was going to see right through you. And he was going to be able to discern right and wrong and enforce true justice. And so people realized, whoa, we don't mess with this guy. And in a, in a sense, you take that, times it by infinity, that's the way we view God. Because God has absolute knowledge. He has absolute wisdom. He is incapable of making a mistake. And so we can't get away with anything. Right? That's the idea. We need to learn to fear him, to walk in his ways. And so that concept is, of course, what is brought out in the book of uh, Proverbs. Now, let me just briefly read. I have a, that last passage on the screen. I'm going to read that one just real quick. Because in 1 Kings 4, it, it, it lists for us uh, just briefly some of the wise or the achievements of Solomon's wisdom. So 1 Kings 4, it says this, verse 29 to 34. It says, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much and largeness of heart. It says, even as the sand that is on the seashore. And the largeness of heart is probably a reference to his IQ, his total ability of, you know, total recall, if you will, like his ability to, to gain and retain information. But it says God gave him wisdom and largeness of heart. And it says in verse 30 that Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country, that's Mesopotamia, and all the wisdom of Egypt. Now, in antiquity, those were your famous repositories of wisdom was Mesopotamia, right? The Sumerian culture. Are you familiar with that? They invented the, you know, 360 degrees in a circle, 60 minutes in an hour, you know, etc. They were uh, cutting edge of knowledge and wisdom in antiquity. And, but then Egypt was, was renowned for other areas of wisdom, right? When it comes to their mathematics, right? Think of the Great Pyramid, right? Their architecture, their mathematics, uh, their, their understanding of uh, astronomy. We were just talking about that. <laughs> Pastor Case and I were just talking about that before the service began. Some of the, the understanding that they had in antiquity was, was remarkable. Uh, you know, even by modern standards, we can't reduplicate all of what they were able to accomplish in some ways. But the point is, whether you go east or west, whether you go from Mesopotamia or Egypt, either way, Solomon's wisdom surpassed them all. In fact, it goes on in verse 31 to say he was wiser than all men. And then it names a few famous wise men that were contemporary to Solomon or before his time. For instance, it names Ethan the Ezraite and Heman. Uh, those two guys, Ethan and Heman, have actually written portions of the scripture. If you study uh, the book of Psalms, Psalms 89. Psalm 89 was written by Ethan the Ezraite. Psalm 88 was written by Heman. These are two famous, probably Israeli wise men, sages, but Solomon surpassed them in his wisdom. But then you have these other guys that we don't know anything about, but they're named here, Kalkal, Darda, and Mahol. But these guys who were famous in Solomon's day paled in comparison to Solomon himself. It says his fame was in all nations round about. For he spake 3,000 proverbs, his songs were 1,005. Now, we don't have all of those. In fact, as we study the book of Proverbs, we don't have all 3,000 Proverbs of Solomon. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a few moments. We don't have all of his songs either. In fact, we have two Psalms of Solomon, 
that are contained in the book of Psalms. And then we have his song of all songs, his greatest of all songs, his masterpiece, which is, of course, the Song of Solomon, right? The book of Song of Solomon. But other than that, we lost, uh, you know, they're lost to history, the other thousand some odd songs. But nonetheless, it goes on to describe how all people would come to hear the wisdom from Solomon, verse 34. Uh, From all the kings of the earth, they would hear him because he was the royal sage. He was wiser than all the professional sages of the other monarchies around the world. So you have people like the Queen of Sheba who says, wow, I want to come and hear of Solomon. So she does. And it says when she shows up, hears his wisdom, sees his court, it says it takes her breath away. She's, she says, the half was not even told me. This is amazing. And that sort of wisdom that God gave Solomon is what is contained in the book of Proverbs. So Solomon goes on to try to give this wisdom to his son. In fact, if you read the book of Proverbs, the first nine chapters in particular make this crystal clear. But the book of Proverbs was composed as a wisdom curriculum designed as a textbook of sorts for the instruction of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. In fact, Rehoboam, uh, Solomon probably had more sons, right? It's very probable. But we only have one named son recorded in the scripture, and that's Rehoboam. It's the guy who becomes the king after Solomon. Now, one of the great ironies is that Solomon composed the book of Proverbs to be a wisdom curriculum for his son, Rehoboam, in order to inform him and to give to him all things that were involved in growing to maturity, whether spiritually, morally, or culturally. There'll be things in the book that have to do with kingly protocol. Things, how do you handle yourself in a kingly court? How do you discern between good men and evil men? Those are all things Rehoboam's going to have to have knowledge of and wisdom and savvy in order to rule the kingdom properly. So Solomon is trying to give this wisdom to his son. But I like to say, Rehoboam slept through a few of the lessons. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Because you read the narrative, what happens to Rehoboam? He becomes the classic fool. And because he, he goes to listen to his young, naive, you know, compatriots or whatever, his contemporaries that he grew up with, rather than listening to the, the wisdom of his father and the wisdom of his father's counselors. And you can read about that First 1 Kings chapter uh, 12. But nonetheless, the book of Proverbs informs us, and we just read that a moment ago in Proverbs 1.1, that most of the Proverbs that we find in the book of Proverbs were written by Solomon, according to chapter 1, verse 1. However, depending on how you read it, chapter 22, verse 17, as well as 24, verse 23, informs us that uh, Solomon also compiled wisdom from others. In fact, when we get to chapter 30 and verse 1, it tells us that this is uh, the words of Agur, the son of Yaqeh. Now, there's some conjecture on that. Some will make those names code words for David and Solomon. Uh, And that's possible, but we really have no evidence to support that. It's really just a conjecture. Uh, If you take the text at face value, the book of Proverbs consists of wisdom either original to Solomon that he himself composed or collected by Solomon that has origin elsewhere. Uh, Another example of that would be chapter 31, the, the famous chapter, Proverbs 31. It says, this is the words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. So this was composed, this is one of the few chapters in the Bible, right? I mean, you might rank it up there, the Song of Deborah, 
right? Judges 5. But there's only a couple portions of the Bible that would have been written uh, or composed by women. But here's one of them. Proverbs 31 is actually the wise sage advice to King Lemuel by his mom, right? <laughs> and I love it. And he's, all, and he's talking about, you know, what kind of woman he should marry, right? It's, it's great stuff. In fact, we'll also find out in Proverbs 25.1 that the, the portion from 25.1, Proverbs 25.1 to 29, uh, 27, that portion are also Solomonic Proverbs, but they were not published in the time of Solomon. In fact, who, who published them? Do you remember? Do you remember this off the top of your head? Proverbs 25.1 tells us that these are also the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied out. In other words, and, and I'm, I'm going to try not to get lost in this because I, I love that era of Hebrew history. Hezekiah was a godly king. The nation was on a landslide down. You know, I mean, it was just, they were heading towards total disaster. But you have a couple of guys like Hezekiah, Josiah, that really tried to hold back this progression of evil that the society was disintegrating with. And uh, one of the ways that he did that, one of the ways Hezekiah tried to retard the process of evil and to support and, and to prop up godliness was he concerned himself with the scripture. He concerned, he concerned himself with the recording and preservation of the scripture. And he wanted to go back and make sure that some of that, those wisdom psalms or, or proverbs in this case of Solomon were not lost to history, but that his people in his time would have access to that wisdom. Uh, and we could go on, and that, that's one of my favorite texts in the Old Testament that highlights how the Old Testament itself and, and the Bible at large came into being. Uh, just how, you know, that process of recording and preserving the scripture. And um, that's, that's a side note, it's a rabbit trail we won't talk about today, but I, I love that subject. And Proverbs 25.1 gives us some pretty incredible insights into how that happened. But nonetheless, that's your background to the book. That's who wrote it, when, why it was written, etc. But zoom out and think about the book from the 30,000 foot view. And here's the major movements of the book. In other words, if you were to overview... Proverbs and look at it and see its major components, the seams of, to the book, if you will, then you will discover that the first nine chapters of the book are Solomonic admonitions towards wisdom. In other words, it's, it's cast in a father speaking to a son. In, in fact, the term my son appears 15 times in those first nine chapters. And his, the whole point is, is Solomon pleading with his son, in this case, Rehoboam, to understand the value of wisdom to be, in a, in a godly sense, afraid of folly and fear the Lord. That's really, it's a set of lectures, right? In fact, those of you who are parents or grandparents, right, do you have a set of lectures that you try to give to your children? My dad had a number of lectures for me, let me tell you. So did my mom. <laughs> Uh, and now I've reduplicated them, right? And my children are just like, oh boy, here he goes again. Right? <laughs> I'm like, I've got a lot of lectures to give to my children. But that's what chapters one to nine are. It's a series of lectures. They're longer thought units, paragraphs, chapters at a time, where it's, a, it's speeches that Psalm is giving to Rehoboam, trying to convince him of the value of wisdom. Well, then from chapter 10 to verse, uh, verse one to chapter 22, verse 16, we have a collection of miscellaneous proverbs from Solomon. I'm not going to get into this. It's a debate. I'm, I'm still, I got my leanings. 
um, but I'm still not 100% settled on it. There's a huge debate whether or not that section is organized or not. Is it a random compilation? Or are the Proverbs ordered in a particular way for a particular purpose? In other words, when you come to teach the, that section, you have to answer that question. Am I going to teach it verse by verse and try to find a structure in that chapter, that paragraph? And there's scholars that, that you know, argue eloquently to that end. Or is it, as other scholars argue, what the text seems to imply, that it's a random compilation of Proverbs? That it's an anthology, it's just a collection. And so when you get to that section, you teach it topically rather than expositionally. Does that make sense? And so those are your classic debates when it comes to teaching. I will probably teach that section topically when I get there um, because I myself have found great value in that for my own life and then also ministry. In other words, one of my goals in teaching the book of Proverbs is to, to create for our church a counseling core uh, you know, of, of lectures and, and studies that deal with separate topics. In other words, I, I'm planning on, you know, unless I change my mind between now and then, I'm planning on combing the book and compiling the Proverbs that have to do with wise speech or wise finances or wise parenting or wise marriage. Does that make sense? In other words, there is, I, I have found tremendous help in that when you take the Proverbs and you compile them all on a particular subject and you see the well-rounded nature of the wisdom that Solomon is trying to impart. Because there'll be times that Proverbs are saying two opposite things. I'll talk about that in just a second. And yet the whole point is he's trying to balance you. Because prov- proverbial literature is situation sensitive. And I'm getting ahead of myself. So we'll come back to that thought. But if you were to keep going through the book of Proverbs, in 22, chapter 22, chapter 20 to 24, you have two collections of what Solomon calls the words of the wise. These might originate with Solomon, or they might originate elsewhere. I'm not going to get off into it because I don't have time, but we do have extra biblical records from Egypt and Mesopotamia that match these Proverbs, in some cases, word for word, exactly the same. The wisdom of Agur. Uh, you know, we have uh, Aminamope, the, the Egyptian wisdom, that match nearly identically these words that we find in the book of Proverbs. So there's a debate. Did Solomon originate them and these other you know, uh, kings took them? That's possible because 1 Kings tells us, we just read it a moment ago, 1 Kings 4 tells us that kings from all over the world came to listen to Solomon. All right, so that's very possible. Or others will argue that these are wisdom from you know, these other kings that Solomon compiles to pass on to his son. Either way, the concept remains the same, that you've heard the phrase before, perhaps, but all truth is God's truth. In other words, one scholar puts it this way, the book of Proverbs is the scrapbook of common grace. The scrapbook of common grace. What in the world does that mean? It means that even an unsaved person that has no connection with God or the Spirit of God in their hearts they can still discern basic truths about life. Can they not? Have you ever learned something that was really profound and helpful from a pagan? I have. Well, because they, that's the book of Proverbs, is they can see, they can observe that there are ways that the created order operates. Why? Because there is a creator. There is order. There's purpose to life. And some of those observations can be made even by non-believers which is why many non-believers will still come to the book of Proverbs. You've heard this before, perhaps. 
But there's pagan people who hate God and hate the Bible, but they operate their business according to the book of Proverbs, the principles that are found here. Why? Because it works. And that's the whole point. All right, so we'll come back to that idea as well. But uh, we have then, of course, in chapter 25 to 29, another miscellaneous collection of Proverbs from Solomon, but Hezekiah's men copied them out. And then we get to chapter 30 and 31, and you have the words of Agur, the son of Yaqeh, right? We don't know who that is. Um, we don't know of him other than his name mentioned there in Proverbs chapter 30. But then you have the words of Lemuel that his mother taught him, which is probably the entirety of chapter 31. But some will break out the famous poem of the Proverbs 31 woman, right? You ever heard that? The Proverbs 31 woman starts in chapter 31, verse 10, and goes to the end of the chapter. And the reason that we break that out is because it's obviously a, a thought unit. It's an acrostic poem. You know what an acrostic is? Right? So it's an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 lines. Each line begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. All right? That's the point. It's a very highly organized, beautiful piece of literature designed to describe the ideal woman. Uh, and so that, that's chapter 31, verses 10 to uh, 31. So with that said, I want you to understand not just the big picture, the seams of the book, but now let's start thinking about the nature of the proverb in particular. Let me share with you just some concepts that help us gain an understanding of what a proverb is and how we are to apply it in life. One scholar that I enjoy consulting when it comes to these, uh, this, this area is Leland Riken. He says this. He underscores the high value of proverbial literature by saying, quote, Proverbial thinking enables us to master the complexity of life by bringing human experience under the control of an observation that explains it and unifies many similar experiences. End quote. In other words, that's the value of a proverb. It says it in one sentence that you, you know, might in your mind, you're like, ah, oh, you know, there's a, there's a truth out there, but you, it takes you paragraphs and pages to try and explain something. And a proverb takes that, boils it down, and puts it into one sentence that's easy to remember, that's penetrating in its insight, and, it, and its observations about life. Or that phrase by Riken, put more simply, is simply this. Proverbs are a way of organizing what we know to be true about life. The Proverbs are a way of organizing what we know to be true about life. That's what the Proverbs are. So a proverb consists of what you might call a savvy observation put into a pithy instruction. It's a savvy observation put into pithy instruction. Because the point of a proverb is not only to make an observation, but to make it practical, to give us instruction on how to make that observation practical in our life. So a proverb, again is a short, impactful statement of ethical import. It's going to give you an ethic, a moral to it. There's a moral to the story, in other words. It's a practical insight regarding life in all of its parts. Some helpful definitions for a proverb that I have found helpful uh, come from these various men. Russell calls a proverb the wisdom of many and the wit of one. The wisdom of many and the wit of one. Riken says that he calls Proverbs short sentences long remembered. <laughs> I kind of like that. Short sentences long remembered. Arnot calls a proverb laws from heaven for life on earth. Laws from heaven for life on earth. And then Charles Martin says it's wit that works. Proverbs is all about wit that works. 
However, I want to point out something that is helpful. When I first grasped this, it really helped me in my understanding of the book. Go to Proverbs 26 real quick. Because what I want you to understand for just a, I got, I got about 10 or 12 minutes, right? Am I supposed to, I was asking people, right? I just said, hey, you lead in song. You tell me when to start talking and tell me when to shut up and I'll fill the gap in between, okay? But am I done by 9 or 10.30? Is that the plan, right? Okay, because the clock on my computer says it's 9.20 because it's still on Nevada time. So I got a lot of time here. (laughs) But anyways, okay, so I got 10 minutes, so stick with me. Proverbs 26. Interesting tidbit on this. Uh, I'm not, I should not have time to get into it. You ever heard of the Council of Jamnia? It was the Jewish sages of old, and it happened in A.D. 90, and, and Christianity was a part of it. Because Christianity was, was producing new books, the Jews reacted to that, and they said, whoa, we've got to canonize the Old Testament and decide you know, which books you know, belong in, which don't, and, and try and reject Christian literature. That's a story for another time. But at that council, there were a number of Jews that actually read these two verses and said, Proverbs doesn't belong in the Bible. Now, obviously, they were wrong and it didn't, you know, their argument did not win the day. But notice, this was their reasoning. You have two verses right next to each other that contradict. Proverbs 26, verse 4 and verse 5. says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Okay, which is it? Solomon, you're a little confusing to me. Right? What in the world is going on here? I remember I was a, I was a kid. I don't know how old I was. Dad did a, a family devotion after lunch on these two verses. And uh, boy, I'm telling you, it, it was helpful ever since. And when I started to grasp this, it became very helpful in understanding the nature of the book of Proverbs. The point that is illustrated in this text, these two verses side by side, is that Proverbs are principles that are situation-sensitive in their application. Both of those Proverbs are true, but it depends on the situation as to which is true at that moment. In other words, let me illustrate. Because of these two seemingly contradictory statements, I already told you that, but some ancient Hebrew sages contemplated whether or not the book of Proverbs should even be in the canon of Scripture because they thought, whoa, this is a contradiction. It's a blatant contradiction. It's not a contradiction. Rather, they were misunderstanding the nature of a proverb. Proverbs, in and of themselves, by definition, are situation-sensitive by design. They're not meant to be a catch-all category, categorical statements that universally apply to all situations. Rather, they are situation-sensitive. Let me give you an example that I always think about come Thanksgiving time. When I was growing up, whenever it was Thanksgiving time, my mom would always say, too many cooks spoil the broth. What does that mean? It means get out of my kitchen. Right? That's what it means. It means, you know, don't touch the stove. Back off. I'm the cook. Let me cook. That's what it means. But then we would all sit down to a wonderful Thanksgiving meal. We would stuff ourselves to the gills. And then my mom would say, when it's time to do dishes, many hands make light work right? Come on, guys, it's time to do dishes. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just kicked us out of the kitchen an hour ago. Now you're inviting everybody in. Well, why? Well, both of those are proverbial statements, both of which ring true, but they apply to different situations. Does that make sense? That's the way the Proverbs are. So paradoxically, 
One needs the book of Proverbs in order to gain wisdom. Yet on the other hand, we also need wisdom to appropriately apply the Proverbs. Think about that. It's a paradox. You will only get wisdom, God's divine wisdom, by reading this book. And yet, as you learn it and glean wisdom, you need that wisdom to apply this book properly in its given situation at the right time. For instance, back to our text of, you know, 26, 4, and 5, there are times that you do need to speak up and you need to make your position known. You need to expose a fool. But then there are times that the fool is just going to prattle on and you're wasting your breath to sit down and try to convince him otherwise because he's a fool. Both of those are true. You just need to know the wisdom. You need to have the wisdom to know know which situation calls for that particular proverb at that time. And that has helped me out immensely. And, And that's another lecture for another time is identifying a fool. Right? I got a whole lecture on this, right? Can't you wait for my sluggard sermon and my identify a fool sermon, right? But comb through the book of Proverbs. You can find what, how a fool is described. And I'm telling you, it's immensely helpful. The more people I meet and deal with, you know, it's really helpful to become discerning on who is a fool and who is not. In other words, is this person teachable? In a counseling scenario, this is huge for me. When I sit down and I'm like, all right, can I help this person? Or are they only here to bend my ear, to blow smoke, and then and not listen to a single thing I have to say because they're a fool? And I'll give them a session. And then if they demonstrate themselves to be a fool, I'm not going to give them 50 sessions because they're wasting my time. And there's someone else in line that needs help that will listen. So the book of Proverbs tells me who to teach and who not to. Because there are people who are unteachable. So, Proverbs 26, verse 4 and 5, I'm telling you, boy, is that helpful, right? To discern a fool and to help those who are willing to, li- to listen and to learn. Now, with that said, I hope you realize the practicality of Proverbs. It's immensely helpful. It's immensely helpful because it gives you the ability to discern life, to navigate the difficult waters, as we said before. But what's interesting about the book of Proverbs is that it deals with skillful living in all areas of life. And therefore, it serves as one of the most practically helpful books of the Bible. It's remarkable. This is just a really short sample list of the subject matter that the book of Proverbs is going to deal with. It's going to talk about marriage, business, speech, attitudes, treatment of the poor, work ethics, child rearing, interactions with members of the opposite sex, eating, drinking, finances, treatment of enemies, physical appearance, and people skills. I remember one time I was at camp. I was a camp director. No, I think I was the assistant at the time. And there was a a young man who came to me, and he was, let's just be honest, he was one of the most socially awkward individuals I have ever met. And he struggled. He knew he was socially awkward, and he was was struggling with it. it. Like it bothered him because he couldn't make friends and keep friends. He was just so weird. Well, I I was one of the few people who actually treated him like a human being, so he could talk to me. So he came up to me, because everyone else tried to avoid him. But he came up to me and says, Jeff, I just, I I, I want to figure out how to be a friend. Like, I want to have friends. Like, how do I do it? And it just so happened, in God's providence, I had just compiled a list from Proverbs chapter 25 of social cues. Because the book of Proverbs is Solomon telling his son how to conduct himself in a court. How do you 
become, how do you develop good social skills in order to be an effective leader? And I said, hey, let's look at this. And I, and I, I don't know, I had like a dozen of them. And it was amazing to watch his eyes pop. And he was like, wait a minute, the Bible actually talks about that? I'm like, yeah, it does. The book of Proverbs is so cool when it comes to that. It's, uh, there seems to be no, ter- no stone unturned. Every area of life is addressed. But let me end with this. Let me just briefly talk about the road to wisdom, the milestones along the way that the book of Proverbs tells us this is how you gain wisdom. All right, and then with this, we'll be done. I've got a couple minutes. First, and you can see this, for instance, in Proverbs chapter 6, where he says, the father speaking to his son, Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Right? Well, that's teaching you that wisdom can be gained, number one, by observation and experience. This is why even pagan people can have a degree of wisdom. Why? Because you you put a few decades on them, and they start seeing things about life. They start recognizing basic patterns of behavior, and they can predict things because people don't change all that much. You know what I'm saying? And so just by observation and experience, people gain wisdom. And we can see it even from the natural world, like the ant, right? The Proverbs is teaching us about work and work ethics and, you know, uh, being industrious, etc., planning ahead, and it's using the analogy of the ant. Secondly, intentional instruction. For instance, back, we read that a moment ago, but Proverbs chapter 4 is a father teaching his son. Right? That's David teaching Solomon. Chapters 1 to 9 of the book of Proverbs is Solomon pleading with his son Rehoboam. In other words... You get wisdom from wise people who teach you wisdom. This is why it says in the book of Proverbs, the glory of old men, right, is their gray hair. And as they say, right, again, in that proverb, it says the glory of young men is their strength, right? Because as you get older, you're like, oh, I can't move that couch. I need help, right, moving that refrigerator. And you call over a young dude to go and do the work. But then the young dude is about to break his back as he's lifting that fridge. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I got a dolly right over here. You know, because your wisdom helps teach that youngster. And his strength helps accomplish the work that you can no longer do. Right? That's the whole point. The the book of Proverbs makes that savvy observation, very practical observation. But wise people pass on wisdom. And this is primarily, in the, in the book of Proverbs, this is implored at, in the family unit. Fathers teach your children. Right? G- grandparents teach grandkids. Right? In, in other words, be active in passing along wisdom. Number three, according to the Proverbs 12.1 and 10.17, we also gain wisdom by making mistakes and learning how to do it better the next time. In other words, uh, Bob Moriarty, he's one of my... Uh, uh, leaders over there in the church. He'll be here in a couple of weeks to speak for you for one of your Sunday morning services. He likes to say that wisdom is what you get right after you needed it, right? <laughs> I love that definition, right? I mean, it's like, oh man, like that hurt. And like, okay, now I know how to do it because I now know what I shouldn't do, how I shouldn't do it. So making mistakes and correcting course is a way to gain wisdom. But then lastly, and most importantly, and with this we'll be done, The book of Proverbs says that the revelation of God is the primary source of wisdom. In other words, there are things that are true about life that you will not learn from merely observation, experience, instruction of other wise people. 
you need God to speak from heaven, to give us supernatural insight. That's what the word revelation means, right? To reveal something, to draw back the curtain so you can see what's behind it. That's what God does when he reveals truth through the prophetic word and the prophets of old and, you know, the incarnation of Christ being the ultimate, you know, example of of the revelation of God. But the point is, this is why the book of Proverbs will say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because if you don't have the humility to understand that you need instruction from outside of yourself, then you will never become wise. Wisdom starts there when you start realizing, whoa, I need help. I need someone else to tell me, to show me. I am not a one-stop shop for everything awesome, right? I mean, I, I, I can't do everything. I don't know everything. And we men, right? This is hard for us because we never ask for directions, right? <laughs> uh, but when I figured this out and I started realizing, wow, like there's a lot of things I have no idea how to do it. But I know somebody who knows how to do it. So I'm just going to ask them. Man, does that make life way easier, right? Well, that's wisdom speaking. You don't have to do it all. But you need to have the humility to say, okay, I don't know how. Someone teach me. And when you have that humility, ultimately oriented ultimately toward God, that God is the one who teaches, he says, then boom, you are on the road to wisdom. You will become a wise person if that's your mindset. Isn't that good? Boy, book of Proverbs is really helpful stuff. I'm out of time now. According to my clock, I got an hour left, but I know that's not true. So let's close in prayer, and we'll dismiss, go have some coffee and cookies and whatever, and then we'll gather for the next service. Father, thank you for the time this morning. Thank you for this wonderful portion of Scripture, the book of Proverbs. Thank you, Lord, for you giving it to us. We ask that you would give us an appetite and an aptitude to understand this book, to pursue it, to try and glean from its truth, to live its truth so that we might demonstrate skill for living. Lord, we pray that you would make us wise men and women that would honor you, that would be helpful in in preserving your wisdom and passing it on to the next generation. Might that be true of us, we pray. So help us in this task. All, of course, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.